It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. Social politics are making inroads into public schools. State legislatures, particularly those controlled by Republicans, are mandating that elections for school boards become partisan, and they're drafting legislation to censor books available in school libraries, the curricula taught in classrooms, and even classroom conversations. The law, as it exists, is impossible to follow. Because there is a line in there that says that these district lines have to have contiguous borders, and we in Buckham County and Asheville City don't have contiguous lines. So what we have learned from the research that we've been doing is the bill that, it, as it is written, is impossible. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. Today is the second half of my conversation with board members George Siebert and Amy Ray of the Asheville City Schools and Anne Franklin and Amy Churchill of Buncombe County Schools. If you missed part one, just scroll back one episode in your podcasting app to find it. Today, we dig into State Senate Bill 49, a so-called Parents' Bill of Rights when it comes to public education, along with efforts to erode public education while steering money to private schools. We also talk through the state-mandated redrawing of district lines for electoral purposes and a movement to merge the Asheville City and Buncombe County School Districts. I began this half of the conversation where I left off with part one, the push from Republican legislators to erode public education and steer state tax dollars to private schools. Here, I open with a long-winded question about so-called opportunity scholarships. From how I on the outside see it, it's we're going to give families X dollars that they can put toward private education. But that money is never enough to send the child to private education. So let's say these opportunity scholarships, from what I understand. So this school year, a family of four earning up to $110,000 a year is eligible for a scholarship of up to $6,492. The average tuition for private schools in North Carolina is $10,123. So 
even that family of means that, that is earning up to $110,000, they get $6,400 and change. There's, per student. Per student. There's still $4,000 to cover for families that are making much less. That, that they can't do that. And, and so tell me if I'm wrong in this, that it's a further segregation. It's an economic segregation. It's allowing certain people to be able to send their kids to private school, but never enough to allow all kids into private school solely based on economic means. Am I wrong on that? No, I think you're right on the money. I think you're right. And I also think that speaks to the defunding of public education. So if we're going to talk about where our public funds are spent, if they are spent supporting our students, our our families to to pay for 60% of a private school tuition, think about what that money could do for public schools, which is the most important part of our democracy. It is central to a functioning democracy to have good public schools. And so they're just diverting the money away from public schools. Anybody else who want to talk specifically to that? I'll just say that the data that I know is that eight in 10 children in North Carolina go to attend a public school. Four out of five. Four, four out of five. Sure. You're right. Six, for, 16 th- out of 20. Thank you. <laughs> I know my fractions. Thank you for, thank you for reducing you go to for public me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we're looking at 80% of the population of children in this state going to public schools and we are, uh, and the, and lawmakers in the state are pulling funds away from that 80% of students. It's obvious to me what the intent is. But we also look beyond just those opportunity scholarships. We look at continued underfunding of schools. It's not just opportunity scholarships. They've taken away what was called, one's called master pay for educators that, you know, have more credentials. Advanced um, degrees. So it, so it, it, which I, on the face of it, that's absurd to me as well, that wouldn't you want to incentivize more learning, better knowing your craft, your career, right? This seems to be completely antithetical to that. Why get a master's? Why get a PhD if you're not going to earn any more money for it from teaching in public schools? Again, am I wrong on that? No. No. Okay. You're not. And I want to mention, too, that, you know, as we came out of the pandemic and we talk about the schools and the challenges that we face, what became very clear was that we have more and more students who've experienced trauma. And that what our needs are have shifted. And so the school districts have been put into positions where we are funding more and more uh, mental health counselors and student behavior specialists, things like that, so that we can so that we can assist our students who need to be able to learn, who need that support. We were able to do that through some COVID funding that's going away. And so far, I haven't seen the state offer to fund those kinds of positions. And those are the kinds of positions that counties and local governments are now either forced to fund or not. And if they're not there, our students aren't able to learn because of the different challenges that we all face as we came out of the pandemic and as we face more and more social challenges. Yeah. And there's a natural bridge from that into Senate Bill 49. That was originally the hub of what I wanted to talk with all of you about. And some of the language in this legislation to me is I don't know if it's intentionally vague. It certainly isn't precise. And I wonder, and I want to get responses on how the school districts, both Asheville City and Buncombe County, are responding or at least talking initially about how to respond to some of this language. So some of this is apparent in the legislation. 
a parent has, quote, the right to direct the education and care of his or her child. Okay, what does it mean for a parent to direct the education of their child when it, in the direction of when it, the school boards? First off, let me state that Asheville City and Buncombe County Schools have been about doing many of the things that are in this bill over time. This is not new news. Can you specify what things you're already doing that are in this bill? You just put me on spot. <laughs> we have provided... I need some help. One example that I would I, I think of that comes right away is if a parent comes and wants to know what their student is, is learning, we're happy to... We've always been happy to share the curriculum and the, the materials that are being checked out or whatever. That's not new to Asheville City Schools. So the way that it is posed as a parent's bill of rights, for example, many of the rights that this bill would give parents they've already had. Exactly. Yeah, but, this is, but it uses language that I would think is both handcuffing and mysterious because sure. it, it's, to me, there is no specificity in here. Maybe for the good because you can interpret it however you might want to interpret it, at you as a school district, as a well, school board. And Senate Bill 49 is evolving. The ink's not dry on it. And as they tweak it and we figure this out over time, the things that you're seeing will probably change as those tweaks come into effect. You think they'll change? Yeah, I can give an example of one that did change. Originally, a lot of that, the language was supposed to be implemented by September 15th, and they've now revised that into January. And so I think that one speaks to the advocacy across the state of organizations like the North Carolina Association of Educators, school, school boards, boards get binding mm-hmm. together, um, the North Carolina School Board Association, really advocating for some changes. So I'm not necessarily confident that 49 is going to go away. I, I do see that lawmakers are listening, or at least the, they're getting their ear bent in the right way. Yeah, but that, so. all that speaks to me when you're saying an extension. That just says, okay, we haven't figured out how to cross all the T's and dot the I's of what we want to accomplish here. So I, I don't know that the intent of the legislation is, again, from an outsider, but why would the intent of the legislation change rather than, oh, we need to legally button this up and legally tie this little knot? I want to point to some other things this talks about, this language. Again, in the vagaries of it, schools must, quote, implement a well-planned, inclusive, and comprehensive program to assist parents and families in effectively participating in their child's education. Okay, what does that even look like, a plan to help them participate? Look, PTAs have existed forever. Parents are invited to school board meetings. They can talk directly with teachers, principals, and superintendents. That has never changed. What needs to be in a, a well-planned, inclusive, and comprehensive program to assist parents? Okay, so take that verb, okay, to assist parents and families. Is, just, is it just merely writing out exactly all the avenues that they have to be able to have feedback? What am I missing here? You know, I, Matt, I think this isn't the first piece of legislation that was drafted poorly in a way or vaguely so that they could say they were accomplishing something that they may or may not be accomplishing. In other words, I don't think that particular language or the language that you quoted earlier says much of anything that hasn't either, that isn't already occurring. And, but I also want to say that I think at least, and I don't speak on behalf of the whole board, I'm speaking as Amy Ray, citizen here, This legislation was clearly not intended to—it clearly had an intention to control schools 
and to control the content in some cases that we could teach our students at certain ages, et cetera. And the, at the end of the day, though, there's going to be years of litigation to figure out exactly what some of these terms mean. For example, when you talk about who can, who can teach certain things or who is an educator, what does that mean? If a teacher is not allowed to talk about certain subject matters in the classroom, but a student talks about it, is that okay? Can a teacher respond? And we've, we have to consult with our lawyers now right. to understand exactly what this legislation is requiring because it is not clear. But I think the most important points to make from the school board's perspective from mine is, one, much of the public information, the parent information, parts of the bill, we already do. We always have. That's not to say it's not a pernicious bill in some ways, but it is to say that we're already doing most of it. And then the second thing I would say is that to the extent we will adhere to the letter of that law as we understand it, and we will always advocate for each of our students to feel like they have a sense of belonging in our schools, no matter who they are or what their families look like, and, and we will also want to make sure that they are cared for as individuals and their, their needs are met. You mentioned the word content in terms of what's taught in schools. And that seems to be happening all over the country. Conversations and news articles about teachers either losing their jobs over subjects that were brought up in a classroom that at least historically had not been brought up before, content of books in libraries. How are you as school districts responding to the, for lack of a better word, encroachment of politics on the content of what you're teaching in schools? What's, what, how are you having conversations on the board around that? Our measure is what's best for the students, mm-hmm. always. So but that's interpretive, right? That's subjective. But, so in other, but to answer your question, poli- and we don't allow politics to change or alter what we teach our children or what they have access to. We have to adhere to the legislation. So we will do that. And I would also note that it's not happening all over the country. It's happening in specific states. But um, it's growing. I mean, sure. we're seeing it in Texas and Florida. We're, yeah. s- we're seeing this, and it, it's, it's only happening more and more. More legislatures are considering. There are bills being brought up. Now, some of these bills are ridiculous on the face of it, but it's happening more and more. Mm-hmm. In North Carolina, the legislature, look, we have a supermajority carrying one party, and there are certain factions that donate money to that party that want to see certain things happen. We alluded earlier to outside elements coming in to have some influence on what happens at the county and city school board level. I don't think it's a big leap to say that you're going to have to face that at some point. And if you're not already facing it to some degree, where if you bring up subjects that make a student feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. based on race or gender, who knows? I don't know how that stands up to First Amendment scrutiny at the Supreme Court level. I don't know that. But I, I'm just wondering, you're hearing vapors of this at your meetings, right? Some of the things, that, the, com- the comments that come up. Am I incorrect on that? No, you're correct. <laughs> okay. I just yeah. didn't want to make but, it seem... But I don't think so much of it is driven by fear. Yeah, and we're not a fear-based organization. I, I think that we right. will protect and, and advocate for our teachers mm-hmm. to be able to respond to questions about race or sexuality or gender at a pre- age-appropriate levels and in adhering to the legislation. 
But I think much of the conversations have been parents who have felt like they didn't maybe have access that they probably did have access to all along. Maybe they didn't know it. And then fear around content. And uh, I think our response is, at the end of the day, it will always be the best interest of the kids and the educators, and we won't yield to fear. And that we'll follow the law. And however hamstrung that might put us, we're going to follow the law. And what Amy was saying is very true. Access to this information that's talked about in Senate Bill 49, in my opinion, for the majority of people, has been available to them. They may not have known how to get it. They may not have felt that the road was clear for them to do that, and that this bill speaks to that and says that we'll open our doors when our doors have been open. More after this. When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. There are a couple of things I want to get to around that have been talked about specifically with Buncombe County and Asheville City Schools. One is how a mandated redrawing of electoral lines beginning with the next election cycle could change the makeup of the Buncombe County Schools Board, along with a trend statewide to make school board elections partisan. How is this redrawing or proposed redrawing? It's been passed. Right. But the, the law as it exists is impossible mm-hmm. to follow. Because there is a line in there that says that these district lines have to have contiguous places, borders. And we in Buckham County and Asheville City don't have contiguous lines. So what we have learned from the research that we've been doing is the bill that, as it is written, is impossible. So that just goes to what we were talking about earlier with SB 49, some of the vagaries here. And also from what I understand that it would redraw it in a way that supposedly creates equal populations or roughly equal population size. One person, one vote. Isn't it always that way? (laughs) Am I wrong on that? How is that different from what's being proposed? I think that's what's hamstringing us, is that the way that law is written is it makes it very difficult to accurately determine if it is one person, one vote. We have some wiggle room within a 5% margin, plus or minus for equality, but the 
at the end of the day, it seems like it's very difficult, if not impossible, to ascertain just what that really looks like. I, I guess I'm confused by that. Well, we all are with this bill. <laughs> well, for all I, from all I understand is it's trying to create districts that people have to vote within. So mm-hmm. it's no longer just at-large mm-hmm. voting. So let's say 70% of the people who are in the voting district happen to live within a tight metropolitan area and 30% or more rural, okay? And the, from what I understand, the reason to make these district-based is because they believe that for, if 70% are voting a certain way and 30% are voting another way, those 30% are not being represented very well. So we want to put the people in this rural district who might want to vote differently, have them have their own district. But there isn't enough population to make it equal. So it's watering down, as in a sense, the 70% population. Am, am I being clear? Am I being also very vague about it? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's watering down the majority. That's what it seems like to me. If it's one person, one vote, okay. One person, so the it, po- popular it, vote wins. Let's talk about the way it is in Buncombe County today. Because Asheville City has just started having elected uh, mm-hmm. board members. So they're a little different. So in Buncombe County, you run from the district where you reside, and the entire county votes for you, okay? So the new law, as it's written, would be that only people that live in, because I'm a North Buncombe representative, I'll use that as an example, only the people that live in the North Buncombe district could vote for me or another candidate. It's trying to narrow what's going on. That's what I was getting at a little more. So it's passed. This has to happen next election. What is this going to do, do you believe, what is this going to do to the makeup of the board? What we believe at this moment is that it's impossible to do what the law says we have to do. And I don't mean to keep splitting hairs here, but that's exactly what it says. And because it can't be done, we are looking for them to tweak it in some way so to make it feasible for us to do. It also impacts Asheville City, if you guys want to speak to that. How so? Because they are unusual. (laughs) In a good way. (laughs) In the original writing of the legislation, districts had to be contiguous. And again, they had to be of roughly equal size. The way that Asheville City's district, the district lines as they're drawn, first of all, do not follow the lines of Asheville City proper. So the district is a different size than the city. And there are pockets. North Asheville is in in particular, um, but also in South Asheville, also in uh, West Asheville, I believe, where there are pockets of Asheville City District surrounded by Buncombe County. In fact, I used to live on a street in North Asheville where every single house was different. In fact, when a lot of North Asheville was developed, property owners got to choose. They had to choose who they wanted to be a part of. So you cannot draw contiguous district lines. If that, if the original writing of that law is followed, it's possible that we would have to redraw Asheville City district lines. The challenge there is Asheville City Schools is a, is a special taxing district. So people within Asheville City district pay a supplemental tax. If you were to redraw the lines, you're either pulling people 
into that taxing district, which I believe would be unconstitutional, or you're pulling people out. And so that's when Ann talks about how it's impossible to, to draw based on those lines. That's the impossibility. Can I get to then, there's a parallel effort to merge the school districts. From what I understand, there are certain efficiencies that can be had, economic efficiencies. From your vantage as board members of both county and city schools, what do you think the impacts of merging the school districts would have? If, if I can, Matt, before we even talk about that impact, just so we're clear on what's being asked of the districts. So it's now written into state law that Asheville City Schools and Buckingham County Schools have to jointly do a feasibility study about a merger and present it to the General Assembly by February 15th, I believe the date is, of 2025. So we essentially have 14 months to do this feasibility study. And that is law, and we are going to comply with it. And when I say comply with it, meaning that we will do the feasibility study. What we are going to make sure that we do is maximize this time that we have before it has to be on the desk of the General Assembly that we are involving all stakeholders in this conversation. Yeah, for sure, you have two districts operating in a single county If you were to merge the districts, I think there's no doubt there would be some economic efficiencies. Mm -hmm. We, though, also want to make sure that we're having conversations around the impact of families, the impact of students, the impact of educators, that it's not just a financial impact that we're looking at. And in order to, to find those, we want to make sure we're having conversations out in the community. We're bringing as many voices as we can into this study. Are you hearing from families that they want a merger? Just curious, just as board members, you hear about everything else. People come to board meetings, comment about all manner of topics. This must be something you're hearing from families. Are you hearing anything about that? Where are you hearing? It pops up every once in a while. Yeah, it's and it's just basically a why are there two school districts, a city and a county? And when it pops up, is does it pop up as a curiosity? Yes, it yes, just not and not really a thought. I think one way or the other, it's just maybe I just tend to know more people who just move here from somewhere else, and they're not um, used to a county and city differentiation. From from what I understand, this has been the way it's at least not that this should ever be a reason to continue something, (laughs) but this is the way it's been done for many decades, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. From in that time, from just from your time on the boards and being more involved in, in public education, have there been times where you go, gosh, we can't do certain things, or we'd love to do something with city schools that we're not doing, or there's something happening at the county level that we're not doing. It seems like both of you from in this last hour mirror a lot of what each other is doing. You just are, you have at city schools, you have different, some set of schools under your charge and county level, you have a greater set of schools under your charge, but it doesn't sound like you're doing business any differently. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I would say that more and more we're seeing collaboration. And so I think that there maybe historically was a greater difference, not in what we were doing, but just in how much we were talking and collaborating. And I think with Dr. Jackson and Dr. Furman, what you're seeing is a very clear effort or interest in making sure that we are collaborating and just seeing, talking to each other, learning from each other. 
I have probably heard, I think maybe in Asheville City Schools, we hear a little bit more from parents, uh, perhaps, than from Buncombe County Schools, because the effect of a consolidation would really be to eliminate Asheville City Schools. It wouldn't be a merger, It would be a merger, but I would say we're the smaller district, so the way most people would probably look at it is we're getting swallowed by the bigger district, right? And so what I hear a lot are from families, uh, some of whom have generations that have graduated from Asheville City Schools, and they don't want to merge. They feel like Asheville City Schools serves a particular population in an urban environment. But, and then occasionally there are those who say maybe we should or maybe we shouldn't. But for the most part, more of what I hear is a concern about that and about whether or not the students that we serve would be served as well. And that's not an indictment at all on Buncombe County Schools. It's just more of a concern. What do you, um, and that's what the study is for. Yeah. And I, I don't know that you would know the answers to this, but just from your feeling of it, are there things that happened through the separation to the benefit of the schools in each district that might be more challenging with a merger? I think from my perspective as a a parent in Asheville City Schools and as a board member, what I love about Asheville City Schools is its size. It's small. We're nimble. We're facile. And we have an urban school district far more than Buncombe County, right? Most of our students are more urban. We can be a little bit, and maybe they're just as facile and nimble, so I don't want to suggest that they are not. There is, at least from my perspective, a smaller group. Because there's 10 schools, as a board member, I can go to all of those schools in a week. Mm -hmm. I can visit them. I can know them. I can know their principals. I do know their principals, right? And so I really appreciate the advantage in terms of my understanding of the challenges at each school and also the folks in our central office. I know those very, you know, so it's hard for me to imagine how consolidation wouldn't affect that in negatively, but I completely understand the reasons to study it and am open to that process. We're going to cooperate and collaborate fully with it. Is there anything, any topic or th- that we haven't talked about or anything we did talk about that we brushed over too quickly that you want to add something about? Anybody who has anything? I will just say, I I think this is a great opportunity for both Asheville City Schools and Buncombe County Schools in that this the stars aligned and for probably the very first time we have two new superintendents who came from different areas and so I would like to think that just the personalities of those two superintendents and along with the collaboration of the boards you're going to see great things come out of Buncombe County Schools and Asheville City Schools regardless of what that study says. I would add that Our job as public educators is to provide a phenomenal public education. And we do that in this county, both at the county schools and city schools. Our students are served well, not all of them equally well, by the way. And that is our great challenge and one that we embrace and we are moving forward. But in response to sort of the private school, the opportunity scholarships, which is interestingly named, and even the challenge of charter schools, what we're determined to do is, notwithstanding all of those challenges, show folks why they want to be in public school. Because we are outstanding. And I can say that as someone who has had two children graduate and two who are along the way with all of the things at any given moment that might seem challenging, what they walk away with 
is a terrific education and they are well prepared for college or, or for any, you know, for the career that they want. And we're going to keep moving in that direction and become better and better at it. Remember, this is the second half of my two-part conversation with George Siebert and Amy Ray of Asheville City Schools and Anne Franklin and Amy Churchill of Buncombe County Schools. The first half premiered October 2nd. I want to thank all my guests for taking part in this important conversation on The Overlook. Our First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash The Overlook Podcast. As with most of my interviews, today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater, whose owners, Susan and Giles Collard, have been so gracious enough to allow me to use as my second broadcast studio. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes of The Overlook come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, Please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash the overlook podcast.